Well, welcome. I'm Pastor Alan. I'm glad that you're here. And you all had an extraordinary week, right? Those of you who were here last week? Um, well, I did. <laughs> I really did try to put that in practice. If you missed, kind of forgot this week or did it a little bit, maybe you can do it again a little bit more this coming week. Uh, if you're new, we're in a series. We teach on the same topic for three, four, five, I think this is actually maybe six weeks we've done this one. It's called Right in the Eye, and today's topic is Ruthie and Bo Save Christmas, all right? That'll make, that'll make a little more sense in a few minutes, and if you're kind of a church person, you'll figure it out. But we started this series back five weeks ago with this kind of crazy, gross, R-rated movie, story, movie, movie like a movie, um, from this time in the period of the nation of Israel we call in the book of the, uh, or the book of the judges 300 plus years where people just kind of did what they wanted when they wanted with whoever they wanted and it always turned out bad poorly and uh, <clears throat> we started off by looking at the end of this time period uh, the last verse in judges describes this 300 plus years and it says this in those days Israel had no king so there was no earthly king. God was supposed to be the king. God gave them the law and they were supposed to obey the law. But it's easy when you can't see the king to not pay attention to the king, right? And even for us, if you're a Jesus follower, if you're not, we're glad you're here. But if you're a Jesus follower, you know, we can't see Jesus, we can't see God. So it's easy to kind of decide not to pay attention. So they did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I'd rather do this. Or this seems like more fun, so God, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to do what I want to do. And there's a little bit of that in you and in me, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't do wrong things sometimes. And there was a, a great tragedy for the nation of Israel, just as a tragedy for us. Because when you do that, usually sooner than later, something bad happens. Uh, in their case, there was great tragedies in, in the whole nation. Um, but we have that little caveat, right? Do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But we talked about that's impossible. If nothing else, you always hurt yourself. And so they'd go through this cycle where they'd, you know, instead of looking up, they'd look around, decide to do this or that, and, and follow the people around them, and then bad things would happen, tragedy would happen. And, you know, at one time it was like seven years, another time it was like eight years this went on, and finally they get said, oh, we've had enough, God, we're sorry, we'll never do it again, we've learned our lesson, we promise, we promise, we promise, to just get us out of this. And the fantastic, amazing thing about our God is what? He bails them out time after time, just like he's bailed you and I out. <clears throat> the other amazing thing about, about Jehovah God is this. He told the nation of Israel, like it or not, I'm going to use you. Cooperate or not, I'm still going to use you. And he says the same thing to you and I. And most of us, if we've been Jesus followers for a while, can see how God's used us even those times we decided, hey, God, I want to do my own thing. And in the midst of this 300 years of chaos, if you will, God was doing something special. God was actually decorating preparing for Christmas. Where people were just kind of ignoring God, doing their own thing, tragedy, bad things were happening. There was really not much to celebrate. God was preparing for, like 1,300 years later, for the first 
Christmas. Now we've got a couple characters here in the story. One of them is an angry woman. And we're going to see why. She just felt God had abandoned her, wasn't answering her prayers, wasn't blessing her, wasn't doing what she wanted. And so she just got angry, disappointed uh, with God. Bitter, as we're going to see. And then there's this guy that in the midst of all this chaos decided, I'm going to believe anyway, God. I'm going to try and follow the rules. I'm going to be trying to be a godly person. I'm going to try and be a good person. I want to be a person uh, that serves you and, 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 and is helpful. <clears throat> now we find this story in a book called the book of Ruth. And if you've been in church for a while, you probably know most of the story. And so this is during this 300 plus years, I don't know if you realize that, but during this time, the judges, in fact, the next verse we're going to look at is going to tell us that, um, we find this, this fantastic story that's kind of like a bright light in the midst of all the darkness. This is like an exception to the rule. Uh, everybody else is kind of doing their own thing except for the characters in our story. So we're going to look at Ruth uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to begin with. In those days when the judges ruled in Israel. So this is during this time frame, during this 300 plus years. Uh, and this story almost reads like a fairy tale. It's not, but it almost reads like, you know, once upon a time, uh, as you see some of the things that, that, that unfold. A severe famine came upon the land. So uh, a man from Bethlehem. So that's kind of the Christmas town, right? Bethlehem. This is where they lived. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. So you have Jerusalem and Bethlehem's close by and then you have the Dead Sea <clears throat> and then Moab's on the other side. Now they tell me you can't drown in the Dead Sea. It's got so much salt you would float. So he could have floated across, took a boat across, went around it. But anyway, uh, there's a famine there. They can't grow food to, to live. So they traveled to Moab. But you have to realize now they're foreigners. They're in a foreign country. They're no longer in their country. So they're going to be foreigners. Now the man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. And I didn't put their son's name. They're too hard to pronounce. But they had their two sons. And they were from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. So they stayed there for a while. If you read the story, it's like over 10 years. So, two sons. So after a while, really important to Jewish people like most of us is to continue your family name, your lineage. So they had two sons. They wanted their sons to get married, but big problem. There's no Jewish girls around, right? They're in Moab. And so they understood that God said, yeah, you're not supposed to marry foreign women because, not because he was against foreigners. It was just that when the women came, they brought their gods with them. And God wanted the Israelites to stay pure in their belief of him. But no other options, right? So they married their sons off to Moabite women. Time goes by, Elimelech dies. More time goes by, one son dies, and then the other son dies. So ten years later, we have Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Moabite women. And so at this point, Naomi says, I'm cursed. You know, God's killed all the, all the men in my life. I'm, I'm alone. Or my daughter-in-laws are alone. I won't have any grandchildren. I'm cursed. God doesn't care about me. And now I'm, it, I, this is a dangerous situation. 
I'm a woman, or we're three women by ourselves in a male-dominated culture and society. And uh, besides that, I'm a foreigner. I'm a stranger. I'm, I'm Jewish among all these Moabites. Um, so she decides, this is not a good situation, so she decides, I'm going to go back uh, to Israel, to, to Bethlehem. And so the, at the beginning, since her family, the three of them, they, they started off together. And then she begins to realize, my daughter-in-laws are going to be in the same situation I was. They're going to be foreign women with no male protector. Uh, and this is going to be dangerous for them. She says, okay, you know, I'm going back home, but this is your home. This is where your family is. You know, be best for you to stay here. So she tells him that. So one of the daughter-in-laws listens. But the other one, and this is where another main character comes in by the name of Ruth, says, no, 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 no. I'm going to stay with you. And these verses are pretty familiar. and I've used them sometimes in marriage ceremonies. Maybe it's using your marriage ceremony. Ruth replied, this is to Naomi, when she says, hey, you know, stay here. Don't ask me to leave you and, and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. So I'm forsaking you Moabite people. I'm going to become an Israelite. That's a biggie, right? Would any of you want to stop being Americans and be something else? Well, that's what she was doing. And this is the biggest part, though, of course. And your God will be my God. I'm going to forsake the Moabite gods. I'm a believer in your God, Yahweh, the one one true God. And then she continues... Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So she's turned her back completely on Moabites and her family, and now she's completely sold out 100% to Naomi. So they arrive in Bethlehem, and people see them, and, and it's a small town, and everybody knows everything, kind of talking, and they say, is that, is that Naomi that left, you know? Years ago with her, with Elimelech and her, her sons. Um, so they ask her, are you, are you Naomi that, that used to live here? And she says, no, don't call me Naomi. God has cursed me. In fact, you need to call me Mara, which means bitter. I'm bitter, I'm angry. God has forsaken me. God hasn't answered my prayers. He's left me without any male protection, uh, male, you know, um, income. And so, in fact, in verse 21 it says, Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So she still believed there was a God, but she didn't care about this God or she didn't believe this God cared about her. Now the interesting thing is she's like a microcosm of the nation of Israel. Because they, they said, Oh, we don't see any miracles like they had back in Egypt. and You know, God's forsaken us. You know, there's been a famine. Actually, at this time, the, the famine is over. But, you know, we don't see it. We don't, we don't see evidence of God. Now, the interesting thing is, 3,500 years ago, we know Naomi's name. In fact, most of you know my mother-in-law's name, name Naomi. And uh, Ruth. We know about these ladies. We know their names. We know their stories. And this is, again, in a male-dominated culture. How do we remember or know their names? And it was because not only had God not abandoned them, they were at the center of what God was doing. Not just what he was doing then, but what he was going to do 13, 1,500 years later as they uh, decorated or prepared for the first Christmas. So to understand the story, the story from here on, and you can read it for yourself, but 
when they get back to Bethlehem, they're there during the barley season. So different crops come in at different times, and I'm not a farmer, but anyway, this is barley season. So the servants went out to the field and collected the barley. Now, <clears throat> this was part of Jewish law. This was kind of their welfare system. This is the way they took care of the poor. You could only harvest your field once, and so whatever you missed or dropped going through your field once, you couldn't go back and do it again. This was the way that you provided for the poor. So once you've, you, you've collected the grain, uh, the poor people would come out into the fields and pick up what they could find. This is how they, they survived. They would eat it or sell some of it to get other food. So, um, again, this would be dangerous. This would be dangerous for women, especially for foreign women, with no male protector, to be out in this field. Uh, the men could take advantage of her or do anything they wanted. But Naomi says to Ruth, you've got to go out and do this, otherwise we're going to starve to death, right? This is, this is the only way we're going to survive. So that's what she does. She goes out and finds this barley field and starts collecting barley. Anyway, it happens to belong, by, belong to a guy by the name of Boaz. And we don't know at this point in the story that he's actually related to uh, Naomi's husband. But that's the field she winds up in. And uh, so she's collecting the barley and Boaz shows up. He leaves town and comes out to the fields and he's, he's seeing what's going on. And for whatever reason, he, Ruth catches his eye. And he asked, who is this? And they said, well, this is uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law, you know, the Moabite, the foreigner. Um, you know, they don't have a ma- male in the family anymore, so they're out here uh, collecting barley and trying to survive. So <clears throat> Boaz uh, has a conversation with her. And he, he's impressed. And it is a pretty impressive thing that she's done, right? Boaz replied, I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. So you had no obligation to do this. This is out of the goodness of your heart. You, you sent faithful to her and now she's too old to go out in the field to, to collect stuff, but you're young enough and so you're providing for her. That's, that's impressive. I, you know, that, that's wonderful to see. And I heard about how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. So not only were you helping take care of her, you didn't do it back in, in Moab. You came here with her to live among strangers and, and, and forsake all your family. So he was really impressed. And so again, he's a godly man in the midst of kind of an ungodly society and culture at the time. And so we see that in, in, in the next verse. He says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, my God, and God that you have now claimed, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. You've been a kind and generous person. You've taken care of your mother-in-law. And so... Uh, I pray that God blesses you for this. And then he says to his, 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 his farm hands, if you will, he says, I want you to protect her. I want you to take care of her. I want to make sure nothing happens to her. Don't take advantage of her. Don't let anybody else take advantage of her. <clears throat> so she collects barley, she takes it home, and she gets there. Naomi asks a logical question, where did you get the barley? She said, well, I just picked this field and, and I happened to meet the owner. His name was Boaz. Boaz, well, he's actually a, a relative of ours or my, or my uh, husband, um, distant relative. So we need to survive. We need to keep eating. So you need to keep going back to Boaz's field. Now, there's a, a relationship, actually a legal term that comes up in the story that we're not familiar with. And it translates into what we've called family 
redeemer. Now this was a legal position or term in their society. Now the best way to understand it in our culture is this. It wouldn't be a legal term, but most of us have what we call a rich uncle in our family. And often they're not uncles. They're just somebody in the family that, who's the first person you think of when you need some little extra cash? Who's the person that you can probably get it from? That's kind of what the family redeemer is like. He's that person, maybe related or maybe not, but if you have, especially financially, if you need help, they're the first person you're going to go to. Now, legally, the family redeemer had four responsibilities or obligations. And here they are, put them up on the screen. First, to protect the impoverished family. So, when your financial situation got bad, you couldn't pay your car payment, pay your mortgage, whatever, you're going to lose it. Uh, you'd go to rich Uncle John or Tim or, or George, whatever his name is, say, hey, you know, can you, you know, can you lend me some money or give me some money so, I, you know, our, our family doesn't fall in hard times. So that's what, but for them it was a legal obligation uh, to do this. So they would get them out of uh, financial difficulties. Repurchase lost property. So sometimes you would lose your property in the midst of this difficulties. <clears throat> and so you go to your family redeemer and say, we lost our property. And that was a biggie in their culture to, to, to hand down the property from generation to generation. So we lost our property. Would you please go and repurchase it so we have our family property heritage? So that would be an obligation. The third one was to redeem relatives sold as slave. If your financial situation got really bad, Sometimes you'd have to sell your children into slavery to get enough money to, to continue uh, and, and to survive. And so you go to a family redeemer and say, hey, I had to sell my kids into slavery so we could, you know, keep our house. Uh, please, buy them back for us. You know, that, that would be a biggie, obviously. But the most difficult one for a family redeemer to do, assuming they had the money, and they did, usually did, to do the first three, was to provide an heir for the male relatives. Now again, real biggie in Jewish culture is to, to have descendants, right? Carry on the family name. And in this case, <clears throat> Ruth wasn't going to have any descendants. Oh, Naomi wasn't going to have any descendants past Ruth, right? No, no heirs, no males in the family anymore. <clears throat> so this is really important to understand as we go further with the story. Well, at this point, Naomi says to Ruth, I want you to go and ask Boaz to be our family redeemer. He's a distant relative of us. He's, he's a wealthy man. Now, if you're Ruth, think about this for a minute. How likely is he to accept this proposal? You're a Moabite. You're not an Israelite. If this all comes to fruition. A Moabite may become in control of his whole family heritage or a descendant of Moabite. But she says, go ask Boaz. Now, I'm not going to read this part of the story, but in our sexualized society, when we read this part of the story, we think there's you know, some kind of uh, you know, passionate thing going on here. It's just complete opposite. Now she does go out to the field that, that evening. Uh, Boaz is out in the field with his workers. And uh, she goes out and he, after he goes to sleep and lays down at his feet. Anyway, he wakes up in the middle of the night and sees her there and he says, what are you doing? What are you? And she says, well, I would like you to become our family redeemer. And he says, okay, okay. 
um, stay here, but before it becomes light, before there's some kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, gossip, you need to leave. <clears throat> but that was an official way to uh, say, hey, I, I want to become, you to be, I want to become under your, in your family. You become our male, uh, male redeemer, or family redeemer. <clears throat> so he doesn't say no, he says yes, but he says, but, I'm not your closest relative, which I mean, I don't have first dibs. I'm not the first family redeemer. But he says, tomorrow, you know, first opportunity I have, I'll go down to the town square and legally proceed with trying to work this all out. So, you know, if this guy becomes your family redeemer, you'll be okay. And if not, I will do it. So, he goes and finds this guy and he starts talking to him. He says, okay, um, Naomi's here, Elimelech's uh, wife and uh, Naomi, their daughter-in-law and they have no male provider and uh, you have first dibs or first rights or family redeemer and they've got this property. And so he's got the money and he, it's always good to have more property. So he says, yeah, 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 okay. I, I will take up the responsibility of family redeemer. Uh, thinking of just of this first couple, uh, protect and, and repurchase. So then Boaz speaks up. Because he really wants to do this. He says... Of course, you purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. Ah, that throws a big monkey wrench in the whole deal, right? That way she can have children who carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. So the guy's saying, eh, that's kind of risky, you know. Again, <laughs> my, 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 my uh, inheritance may pass on to a, to a former Moabite. So then he says, I, I can't do it. it. It's too big a risk. Can't do it. Because this might endanger my own estate. So you, Boaz, you redeem the land. I can't do it. Now again, Boaz is this honorable man in the midst of a culture of, of people just doing whatever they want, whenever they want, disobeying God, ignoring God. <clears throat> He's an honorable man. So according to, to the law, their, their culture, this is the honorable right thing to do, even though it's again a huge, huge risk to his inheritance. <clears throat> now, this could be the end of the story, right? He marries Ruth and they live happily ever after. But this is God's story, and so it doesn't end there. And so they get married and they have a son, and the son's name is Obed. Now remember when Naomi came back, she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. So when Obed is born and Naomi gets to hold him, gets to hold her grandson, and I'm a grandparent, so I can a little understand this a little bit. Some of you are too. Gets to hold his grandson. Her whole attitude through her life and God changes. She said, yeah, call me Naomi. I am now blessed. God has continued our family and, and I have a grandson. And so Naomi dies and then Boaz dies and Ruth dies but then <clears throat> Obed gets married and he has a son. And his son's name is Jesse. And Jesse has a whole bunch of sons, like eight sons. Okay? And one day God comes to a prophet by the name of Samuel and says, <clears throat> at this time they had their first king earthly king. His name was Saul. 
And God came to Samuel and said, hey, I want, you know, I, what's going on with my mic here? God, I don't want Saul's uh, son, which is normally king's son becomes the next king. I don't want him to be the next king. I want you to go to Jesse's house and one of his sons can be the next king. Samuel says, okay. So let's pick up the story there. So the Lord said, Samuel, go and flask a Bible and go to Bethlehem. Now we're back to that, that city, Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. Now, if you're <clears throat> Jesse, this is a great day, right? If your son's going to be the king, you're the father of the king. So this is a good day in this household. So he brings his sons in. The figures it's the oldest son. Normally it would be the oldest son. Samuel looks at the oldest son. That's nah, not him. Looks at the next son. No, 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 it's not him. Looks at the third son. No, it's not him. Goes to this like seven sons and he says, and Samuel's thinking, wait a minute. I don't think I made a mistake. God sent me here. Don't you have any other sons? And Jesse says to Samuel, well, I do have one other son, but he's certainly not king material. <laughs> he's out in the field. And Samuel says, I- I'm not going to sit down. I'm not going to rest until you bring in the last son, and the class, of course, the last son's name is David, and he anoints David as king, second king. Now, again, Saul's son didn't become the next king, but David's son, Solomon, became the next king. But while David's king, Sam, uh, another prophet by the name of Nathan comes to say, uh, to David and says, and we're going to read this out of Second Samuel. He makes his prophecy. He says, your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. You know, Saul just had one generation. You're going to be king for all time. Your descendants. And your throne will be secure forever. Now, is there a king in Israel right now? Not that I know of, anyway. It's not. So what is Nathan talking about? Anyway, this promise became known as eventually there's going to be a Messiah, a deliverer. And about 25 pregnancies later, 25 generations later, and we're going to read this in Matthew. This is what happens. Eleazar, the father of Nathan. Nathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. Not just any Joseph, but what Joseph? The husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. He also had another name. You know what that name was? Jesus, the son of David. So that's how Ruthie and Bo saved Christmas. And not long after, some wise men showed up looking for what? A king. And Herod didn't like it very much because he was king. And of course, he probably wanted his son to become king. Not some kid born in Bethlehem, and so he tried to wipe out, wiped out almost all the kids except for Jesus. And then 33 years or so later, Jesus is standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, and he asked him a question. So are you a king? And Jesus replies, so as you say, but my kingdom is not of this world. Something better, something bigger. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of the mind. It's a kingdom of the conscience. And it's not just for Jews or for, for Romans. It's for all people. And I'm not come in power. I've come for the powerless. 
And I'm not a king that expects his subjects to die for them. I'm going to die for my subjects. And I've invited everyone, again, not just Jews, I've invited everyone to be part of my kingdom. To be considered to become part. And instead of doing what you want, when you want, with whoever you want, you're going to turn my, I'm going to turn my heart over to Jesus, my King. And it transforms your life. It revolutionizes your life. It changes it forever. But God never forces Himself on us. And there's a Bible verse that talks about He stands at a door and knocks. He wants you to invite Him in. He won't knock the door down. He won't force His way. There's no better invitation than any of us will ever get than that. To join God's kingdom. Sometimes we say join God's family. It's an open invitation to everyone. Or maybe you were a part of at one time and you walked away. Maybe you've never been part. So Christmas is a celebration of the fact that 3,500 years ago, God put this in the, into works. That a Messiah would be born to establish a kingdom, not of the outside, but of the inside, and not just for Jews, but for all people. And so as I pray, I want to pray for you, if you're not part of that kingdom, that you would step across that line and you would say yes. You would answer the door and let Jesus in. So let's pray. Father God, I thank you for each person here. Uh, most of us are Jesus followers. That's why we're here this morning. But some of us might have walked away from you or maybe have never decided to follow you. So on your behalf, on Jesus' behalf, I want to invite them to not delay, not to wait, not to wait to Christmas, not to even wait to tomorrow, but now step across the line and say, yes, I want to join God's kingdom. I want kingdom of the heart, kingdom of the conscience, kingdom of the mind. I don't want to do what I want to do. I want what Jesus wants me to do. I want him to be my king. He's the one that died for me. And God, we thank you. Those of us who are Jesus followers that, that we were able to accept that invitation, answer that door, join your kingdom for me maybe 50 years ago. And it's a kingdom that lasts forever. Not just here on earth, but lasts forever. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.